Well, uh, welcome today. It is good to see you. My name is Ricky. If I haven't been able to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we love Freddie. He um, is at a challenge as an employee to uh, work with at times, uh, but he is well worth it. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And let me just, while you're turning there, let me just make a comment here about uh, kind of the season we're in as a church. So over the last year, uh, the primary obstacle to, 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 to church involvement and coming to be with the gathered church for the Word of God has mostly been a practical hindrance, meaning like there was a period of time we, we were not at the building. Uh, there was a period of time where a, a lot of folks were not able to come because of health issues. Some are still in that place. But as more folks have been able to come back, more folks have been able to uh, come in person at different times, I think we're moving to where rather than the primary obstacle being kind of practical hindrance, I think we're also going to have to start fighting distraction, guys. I think we're going to move into a mode where it's going to be like, oh, now we can do more things. Now we can take trips. Now we can, you know, uh, and, and in some ways it's easy when things begin to reopen and life begins to restart. It's almost like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like church kind of drops in your priority list a little bit. Or even Bible reading and being with the word drops in your priority list. And I think just like we have fought in this last year, we have fought really hard to keep meeting in person for as many as, as could do it. Uh, we got to fight now, I think, begin to fight even distraction, where it's like, uh, I can go to brunch now, you know? And, and we, we haven't had to compete with brunch over the last year. And so I think let's continue to fight, not because, um, not because there's anything that's magical about the human beings that, that do put on services here, but because when the church gathers around the Word of God, something powerful, unique happens. So would you do this? Would you stand up with me? We're going to stand for the reading of God's word today as a reminder of the uniqueness and power of the word of God. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a, man, a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. And Lord, give us eyes to see today. Help us to see what you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me take a seat. Well, in 1965, Bob Dylan played the Newport Folk Festival for the second time. The first time he had played it, it was part of his kind of skyrocketing national fame in the folk scene. If you are a Gen Zer, uh, you are probably furiously Googling what is Bob Dylan. Uh, but there was a time that he was sort of like Donald Glover and that environmental activist girl Greta and, and, and a Hollywood you know, actor, uh, Harry Styles. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to pull names out of thin air to try to relate to you in some way. Um, 
So anyway, he was real famous, but not just a famous person. He was sort of a movement leader in the folk scene in the 1960s in America. The folk music was not just a style of music, like, oh, I like EDM, I like this. Folk music was a movement. It was a movement of peace and love and authenticity. And Bob Dylan, because of his raw sort of personality, his, his raw acoustic guitar playing, his kind of ragged voice, he became the figurehead or one of the figureheads for the folk scene in the 1960s. But at the Newport Folk Festival, 1965, he did the unthinkable and perhaps unforgivable. His band walked on stage and plugged in stacks of amps, and Bob Dylan plugged in a Fender Stratocaster electric guitar, and for the next 12 minutes, he proceeded to rock. And the reaction of the crowd is legendary. The crowd reacted in yelling their surprise and booing loudly. The boos kind of were sporadic throughout his set, and then he ends the set, walks off stage, and the, there is a near riot. And there's a number of people, you can hear the audio recordings, shouting stuff like, bring back the old Bob Dylan, you know? And like, get off the stage, you know, and, and people are just going nuts. They felt betrayed, right? But this was who Bob Dylan was all along. He was always and has always been an edgy, countercultural provocateur, and people were disappointed. Everyone had come to see Bob Dylan, their folk hero, only to discover they'd never really seen him at all. And in many ways, the same thing is happening in this part of the Gospel of Mark. Everybody thinks they see who Jesus is, but people can't see him at all. The problem is not that Jesus is not revealing himself, right? Jesus is progressively been revealing who he is. The problem is that people are not seeing it because they think they've figured him out. They think they see him already. They need the gift they don't know they need, right? They need the gift of sight, and yet they don't know they need it. And the same is true for us. We often think we see Jesus when in reality we don't see him at all. So the, the main point that, that Mark is going to show us today is that it's only through Christ that we receive this gift of sight. It's an overlooked gift, if you could say that. But it is a gift that we all need. And if you're not a Christian, man, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you, maybe you're church for the first time or first time in a long time. We want to say thanks for joining us. This is a great place, a safe place to learn who Jesus really is. Not who people say Jesus is out there, but using his own, uh, his own testimony and witness to learn who Jesus is. And I hope you'll learn to see him today. Three sections today. The first section is our need, the need for the gift, the need for the gift. Now, uh, Biblical commentators have pointed out a pattern in the way Mark writes his gospel, right? It's, and the, the, the way they summarize it is the Markin sandwich. It doesn't mean like a first century hummus and falafel sandwich. It means this is the way Mark structures his 
writing. Uh, we saw a couple weeks ago that Mark had uh, a story about Jesus feeding the crowd and then a story about the Pharisees and then the disciples wondering if they'll be fed. And Mark says, hey, this is all saying one thing. Right now, this week, the only way to understand this week's passage is to understand what comes right before it and right after it, okay? So last week, remember, the disciples, they didn't see who Jesus was clearly. They, they were worried they were going to starve when they had the giver of all bread and life in the boat with them. And Jesus says, do you not yet understand? And then there's this story. And then next week is Peter, the apostle, responding to the question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? So you've got a, Jesus saying, don't you understand who I am? And then Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? And then this story in the middle. Now, what is going on with this story? At first, it seems like just a random detour. It's not a detour. Sinclair Ferguson points out that every miracle Jesus does is a sign but this sign is not primarily for the blind man. This sign is primarily for the disciples. And actually, by way of extension, the sign is actually for us. There's a, it, there was a few years ago a, a, a famous uh, kind of message that went around on YouTube from a pastor who was talking to a group of youth. And the group of youth were gathered there, and so he's preaching to them. And he preaches a pretty rough message about like, hey, you may, you may think you're a Christian. You may, you're, you may not be a Christian. You may well not. You're probably not a Christian. You know? and, and he's kind of laying into people who think that they're Christians. And the, the crowd begins clapping like, yeah. And then he pauses and looks at the crowd and says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And the youth group's like, mm, you know. This is, in essence, what Jesus is doing. He's healing the, this man from his blindness, and the disciples are like, yeah, he was blind, definitely very blind. Good job, Jesus. And Jesus, as it were, looks back at the disciples and says, I don't know why you're clapping. This miracle is about you, right? And by extension, why is this in our Bibles? Because we do the same things the disciples do. We show up, we're like, I got it, I see Jesus, I'm good to go. And Mark and Jesus and the Bible would look at us and say, church, I don't know why you're clapping, this story is about you, right? This story is about you and me and all who come assuming, yeah, I, I got it, I see it. No, we are similarly blind. The, the Bible is actually uh, incredibly offensive, especially to our modern culture in the way that it talks about our sight and our ability. The Bible says our reason, our sight, our emotions, the way that we see the world, that is darkened and miscalibrated. Ephesians 4 has this summary. It says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Like the ignorance is not just like, I just don't know. It's like, no, I could know but I'm not going to because my heart is hard. And the effect is that our understanding, our ability to see the world becomes darkened. Now, this is extremely important for us in our 21st century context. There are sort of two currents that we've learned to trust, I th what the Bible would say, far more than we should, okay? So the first current that we've learned to trust is our reason, now, we live in with the Western sort of civilization culture, post-enlightenment, so we've learned to trust our own reason above all else, right? I think, therefore, I am. Our identity is tied to our ability to reason. And it, Thomas Paine had this great statement. I'm, I'm saying it's a good statement. I'm saying it's a great summary statement, just clarifying here before I say it. 
Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers, said he didn't go to church. He didn't believe in any you know, religious institutions. The only church he worshiped at was the church of his own reason. Meaning like he's the guy. He's going to decide among all these things. Not this, not this. He's going to decide, right? That is a kind of a cultural current that we're still going through. It's like if it doesn't make sense to me, if I don't get it, then it must not be true. But second, I think more recently, there's a current of feelings. We've added to that, well, what I feel must be definitive and authoritative. And so if I feel you're doing this to me, then that's what you're doing, right? You're like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being that way. Oh, you are. I feel like you are. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. I feel like you are. You know, and, and that's kind of the end of the argument. And in our modern age, these two things are what we've learned to trust. The way that I think, what, I, what makes sense to me, and the way that I feel, what feels right to me. The problem is Ephesians 4 says that we are darkened in our understanding, that, that our emotions and our reason are miscalibrated due to our hardness of heart, and we can't even see things correctly. Right? There was a number of years ago where, where I was, uh, I remember, I was such an idiot, but I was sitting in my backyard, and the sun is going down, and it's getting darker and darker. And so we're kind of trying to eat outside. And I remember thinking, like, man, it is so dark out here. It's hard to see, like, what's in the bowls, you know? And, and I'm trying to see, like, is that, what kind of a salad is that? And I'm just really struggling. And it doesn't seem like anyone else at the, tr- the table is struggling in any similar way. And it was, like, probably a number of minutes into the meal when I realized I'm still wearing my sunglasses. Like the sun is down, I'm wearing sunglasses, that's why it feels pitch black out here, right? That is what Ephesians is saying has happened to us. We, we think, we're like, man, it's really hard to see out here, and God's like, it's not, it's not that hard to see, it's that your understanding has been darkened, right? So Romans 1 diagnoses where this darkened understanding comes from. It says that God has clearly revealed himself to us, but we refuse to see God and therefore refuse to see the world around us. In sin, we basically say, I don't want to see you, God. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm turning away. But when we do that, it means you can't see anything else clearly, right? It'd be like if an astronomer said, you know what? I don't like the sun. I love everything else in the solar system, but not the sun. I'm going to not believe the sun exists. I'm going to refuse to acknowledge it, and I'm going to do astronomy. You'd be like, I don't think this is going to work. Like, well, why do you think that things go round and round? I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of magical, planets are curved, so maybe they, they like to turn. And you'd be coming up all kinds of crazy explanations when the other astronomers would say, just the sun makes sense of everything else, right? This is what we do as human beings. We're like, no, God, I'm not going to see relationships or life or anything in relationship to God, and therefore we can't really see anything. Romans 1.21 says, for although we knew God, or they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see both the reason and the emotion there? Our futile thinking, our foolish hearts were darkened, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased Mind, like one of the consequences of our sin, and we're saying, I don't want to see you, God. I don't want to see you. Then God says, I'm partially in judgment. Then you won't see me. That's what you're saying. You don't want to see me. Then I'm going to give you over to not seeing me. And in this way, our upside down sort of version of the world begins to make sense to us. There was a, an experiment a number of years ago where scientists were studying how our eyes adapt 
to uh, uh, problems in, in vision. So if you've ever had a really dirty pair of glasses and you take the pair of glasses off and you see like it's smudgy and there's stuff on the glasses, but when you were looking through, you thought, I could see, you know, fine. And you take them off and you're like, oh my gosh. Well, it's because your eyes learn to adapt. They, they essentially, they've done experiments where they'll like put a dot on somebody's glasses or contacts and your eye, after a while, you won't see the dot anymore because you'll learn to see around it in a sense. So this one, one scientist wanted to see how far he could take this. So he got it glasses that flip the world upside down, which was horrible and nauseating. And the guy was absolutely in excruciating pain for like 24 hours. And so finally, he fell asleep. He woke up. And amazingly, his eyes adapted to the glasses. And he now thought he was seeing right side up. Then, of course, what happened? He had to take the glasses off, right? Another 24 hours going back the other way. This is what happens to us as human beings. We, we're like, I see fine. When in reality, everything's upside down. Everything is darkened. And so the, the, the beginning of this text, uh, the, the, what this text is trying to get us to see is we are just like the disciples. We're like this half-healed guy that we can see a little bit, and we're like, I think we're good. I think we see it. And Jesus is like, no, you can't see it. Look, let me show you. Look, he sees a little bit. Now he sees everything, right? This is where you guys are at. And we're like, no, no, I don't need that gift. I can see fine, right? Getting the gift of sight, receiving the gift of sight starts with seeing our need for the gift of sight. Second, giving of the gift. The good news about this passage is that Jesus not only reveals our blindness, he reveals the cure for our blindness, the gift of sight. And this is such good news because Jesus in the Gospel of Mark has been revealed as the Lord of all creation, the, the maker himself come to give the gift of sight. He alone can actually give this gift. Now, there's a classic sort of postmodern fable that gets tossed around a lot, right? And here's how the fable goes. Uh, three blind men come to an elephant and are asked to describe the elephant. So one person holds the tail and says, okay, it is a snake. It is like a snake. The elephant is like a snake. The second person holds the leg of the elephant and says, the elephant is like a tree. The third person holds the ear of the elephant and says, the elephant is like a bat or like a bird. And the moral of the fable is that basically, usually, the moral is all religions are kind of right. They all see a little bit. So let's all just be cool with whatever you want to, whatever you see is good for you. Have any, do we have any, I'm curious, do we have any high school or college students, kids heard this? Is anybody, anybody tracking with this? The elephant thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this, is, this is really common. The problem is this. The fable misses a crucial truth that we know to be true, even based on our own experience. The truth is this. There is such a thing as an elephant. And we know that because we have all seen the elephant before. The solution to like, well, this person says this, this person says that, this person says this. So I guess we'll never know what an elephant is. That's what our culture does. I guess we'll never know. No, find somebody who can see the elephant. Who can say, look, this is the elephant. It has a trunk. It has big, thick legs. It has a tail. And you're like, oh. Then even the blind people will start to be like, oh, yeah, I moved my hand a little bit over. And if, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm tracking with you, right? Right, this is, this is what Jesus can offer that no one else can. Not only can he see the elephant, 
right? Clearly where nobody else can. He made the elephant, right? He made the universe. He spun out the stars. And so human beings are stumbling around saying, I guess we'll never know how to use romance and sexuality. I guess we'll never know what the meaning of life is. And Jesus is like, I know. I made it, right? This this is why Jesus is utterly unique. And this is what he says in John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus comes onto the scene like a light, and he, in in his ministry, what he is doing is he is illuminating the world around him. And he says, look, if you want to see, follow me. Follow me and you will not walk in darkness. That is how radical Jesus' claim is. That that unless you see him clearly, unless you follow him and walk alongside of him, you will not see anything else clearly. That, That Jesus is not just a religious teacher offering some truth about the universe. He is the authority on all things, preaching the capital T truth that is unfiltered, unbiased, infallible, right? This is who Jesus is. Now, though, that Jesus' trajectory in the Gospels reveals something else, that blindness is a result of sin, but Jesus is not offering a shallow cure. He's not just going to cure the blindness. He's going to go all the way to the root, right? Sin produces blindness. It cuts us off from God himself. In a sense, it, it casts us out of the light in which we can see light, The psalmist says in Psalm 36, 9, in your light do we see light. Meaning it's only when you're in the presence of God, when you're close to God, that you can even see the world around you clearly. So apart from God, in our sinfulness, when our hearts are hardened, we're not only unable to see, we're cast out away from God. But Jesus' trajectory, as we're seeing all throughout the Gospel of Mark, is that he's going to go... And and his mission will be not to just cure the symptom, but the disease. And on the cross, Jesus goes and suffers in the place of sinful people like you and me. And as he does it, what happens even in creation? The sun is blotted out, right? No one is able to see because it's a symbol of, of Jesus being cast into darkness for us. But he bears all of it. In a sense, he absorbs this darkness into himself so that we can be welcomed back into the light of God's presence. Jesus' cure for blindness is not a shallow cure. Jesus' cure for blindness is an all-encompassing, soul-curing, eternity-altering cure that costs his very life. This is what Jesus has come to do, to give this gift. So then, why, again, why this strange two-stage healing? It was not as though Jesus tried to heal him once, and it's like, ah, didn't didn't fully charge the batteries on that one. So he has to take, you know, second hit, boom, okay, great, got it that time. No. This is a picture of the disciples, right? Do the disciples at this stage of the gospel know Jesus? Well, yes and no. (laughs) They know enough that they were compelled to leave their nets and old lives and follow him full time. So do they see him? Well, they see something, and they see something compelling. But do they fully know Jesus as the messianic king? No, I don't think so. Not until Peter says it next week. Do they know him as the suffering servant and the messianic king? Definitely not. Not that until the cross. 
So this has two implications for us today. What does this mean for us? It means we must learn to see Jesus fully and learn to see Jesus truly. We have to see him truly enough to believe, right? I grew up in church. I know well, like I sat in that classroom over there, hearing my teachers faithfully talk about Jesus forever. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Who's Jesus? He's a good guy. And what does he offer? He offers to help good people like me. Like, no, you don't get it. They keep preaching the gospel to me week after week. Who is Jesus? He's a good guy. He's the best guy. What about you? I'm pretty good. No, you said, you said keep going, right? I, did, I heard him all the time. I could have described him to people, but I did not see my need for Jesus or see who Jesus was in relationship to my need, right? We must see the full picture of who Jesus is as Savior and as Lord, and we, we have to make sure we don't see him as, as something that our culture would like to advocate for, which is Jesus is a nice guy. He's a, he's a fine guy. He helped the poor. Great. Good for him. No. Jesus is either the only true-seeing, sight-giving, universe-shaper, or he is nothing, right? There, there, there's no, well, I kind of like Jesus. Either you see him or you don't. So the test really is this. Do you see Jesus truly? And I want to encourage you, man, especially if you've grown up in the church, if you're a teen, if you're in college, like that, that era is where you start to think like, oh, well, I know Jesus. And I see tons of people even reject Jesus or who they think Jesus is because like, oh, I got him. I heard about that growing up and that doesn't work for me anymore. No, if, you, if you, Jesus is something you could take or leave, I'm telling you right now, you do not see Jesus truly yet. But you can. But you can. Second, we must grow ever more in seeing Jesus fully, right? Even in Christ, once we've had the light of salvation break in on us, we are all tempted to say, okay, now I get Jesus. Now I understand Jesus. And Jesus can become boring or stale or like, yeah, sure, I, I, I get it. No, <laughs> no. If Jesus is boring to you or stale to you or you think you see him or you think you get him or you think you understand him, you do not Press in to see him fully. Third, then, receiving the gift. How do we receive this gift? Well, before we talk about receiving the gift, just just, I want you to see this and remember this. Jesus is the one who initiates this gift, right? He's the one that holds the gift out. Um, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus comes to this town. Jesus invites the man forward. Jesus leads him. Jesus makes the first move. Jesus reveals himself. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to draw near to if Jesus had not drawn near to us. But there also is a component where this man must receive the gift. So how does he do that? First, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Sometimes we overcomplicate the Bible, and you know we could say things like, okay, well, so when this man comes to Jesus and receives healing, like what does, that, what does that symbolize? I'll tell you what it symbolizes. You come to Jesus and you receive healing, right? That's, sometimes it's that simple. You come to Jesus, the healer, and he brings healing throughout all these areas of life, including our sight. So then how then do you draw near to Jesus? You do it through the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus is not physically walking around anymore. So you might just say, oh, well, I guess we'll never know. No, I guess we will because he's revealed himself in these pages. Like the Bible claims that it's more than just a religious text. The Bible claims that in these pages, you encounter the living God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. 
and useful for everything, right? That means that the pages of this book, the stories in this book, the commands in this book are words coming from the very living God himself. And see, here's, here's where I just, sometimes I do this as well. We, we could say, man, I just wish I knew what God would say about this thing in my life or that thing in my life. I wish I knew what I was supposed to do. It's there. The word of God is open and ready to speak to you. The words of the living God himself. Look, the gospel of Mark is powered by the recollections of the apostle Peter, right? He walked with Jesus. He physically was with him. But Peter says in one of his letters, that we have something better than his recollections. He says this, and we have now the prophetic word, meaning the Bible. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What, what he's saying is, listen, I could misremember something 10 years ago. Have you ever had a conversation with your spouse or an old friend? You're like, oh, yeah, I remember when we did this. And they're like, no, it wasn't that. It was in Austin. And you're like, Austin? Oh, I guess it was, you know. And then I was there with my cousin Tito. No, it was Larry. Oh, it was. You know, like, have you ever done that? Right? You shouldn't, now nobody should rely on their memory, right? Peter is even saying, I don't even remember everything Jesus said, but I have something better than my memories, which is a more fully confirmed prophetic word, which he says, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What, what he's saying is that if this book in God's incalculable power has been breathed out by him and preserved by him over thousands of years such that these words are the very infallible words of God. Peter says that is better than asking old man Peter what Jesus said on X day or Y day. That this carries with it the living power of God himself. So let us, church, let us be Christians committed to coming to Jesus through his word. Look, I'm telling you right now, if you want to understand the world, if you want to understand yourself, if you want to learn how to change, this is where you find it. It's the only place to find it. Second, let Jesus lead you. You got to come to Jesus, and then you've got to let Jesus lead you. I love this picture of this man who's his, almost the picture is his friends push him to the front, and they're like, go, 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 go. And he's like, okay, I don't know who this guy is. And Jesus takes him, and he leads him away from the spectacle of the crowd to a private place where he's able to talk to him, communicate with him, and heal him, where he won't be a spectacle, right? But this man has to go with Jesus. Can you imagine when he's like, okay, this strange guy is taking my hand. I don't know where this is going, but he goes. We similarly must allow Jesus to lead us. And there's some practical ways that this happens. And first is it, just by personally reading the Bible, if we need the gift of sight, and if it is available in this word, then we must go regularly to learn to see. But let's be honest, man. Like, most of us probably don't read the Bible as much as we think we should. If, if we did a poll in the church, a flash poll, how much do you think you should read the Bible? We'd all answer here. How much do you read the Bible? We'd answer here, right? And, and I think almost everybody would be there. But what I want us to not lose, even in our struggling and striving to learn to be people of the book more and more, is not to give up altogether. Sometimes what can happen is, oh, I miss a day, I miss two days, I miss a week. I, I guess, oh, well, it's not for me. No. 
we must be committed. Like, we got to be committed that if life and breath from God is in this book, we got to get there. We got to get there, right? If you forget to eat one day, you're not like, ah, I guess food. I guess we're done with food anymore. No, you're hungry. Get back and eat a meal, right? This is what the word of God is for us. Second, church. Our church gatherings around the Bible. When we gather, there is a reason that we start with the Bible and read the Bible during worship. And the, mo- the majority of our service is somebody talking about the Bible. And then we end with the Bible. Why do we do that? Because when we open the pages of the Bible, God speaks to us, right? You guys should not ultimately really care what I think about life or what John thinks about life, or even Tom thinks about life. Maybe Tom a little bit more than me and John, right? Nobody should be like, oh, what do you think I should do in my relationship? Don't care. You know what I care about? This. I care about the Bible. I care about God himself speaking to his gathered people with his breath going out and changing hearts week after week after week, right? That's is what we're going to be committed to as a church. Look, I, let me, hear me when I say this. Do not come to this church because we have a decent or nice band. Like, I like when the lady plays the cello. No, I mean, that's great. Thank you, Amy. But don't come to church for that, right? Don't come to church. I like the kids program. They have the moose. I like the moose. I like the moose too. That's not why you should come to church, right? Don't come to church. I had somebody really well-meaning at one point told us, told me, like, I really like coming to this church. I'm like, oh, that's great. I'm glad the Lord's meeting you. Why do you like coming? They're like, well, you know, you're, you're so funny, and I like the way you dress so casually. And everything in me, and I'm like, okay, okay. Everything in me is like, no! Like, like that's not it. Nobody should be making church attendance decisions based on that stuff. What we should be linking ourselves to and binding ourselves to is do we as a church open the word here and in singing and in counseling and in kids ministry and in youth? Do we open the word and unleash it on our lives that we might be able to see clearly again? That is what we commit to do together. Church, we have fought hard for this over the last year. Let us not give up ground in clinging to the gathered church, gathering around the word of God. Amen. And last, I'll just mention this. One last crucial implication is that this man's friends brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. At first, it seems as though these men, these friends knew his need and knew his solution better than he did. It says some people brought to him a man, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. We're going to see a little bit later in the Gospel of Mark the story of blind Bartimaeus who shouts out and calls out to Jesus and Jesus stops for him. That's not this story. This story, the picture is they pick this guy up, they bring him, they're telling him, you're going to go to Jesus. They're telling Jesus, please heal him, please heal him, please touch him, please restore his sight. What does that mean for us? It means that when we see people who need to see Jesus, we do everything we can to bring them to Jesus. We, we have at first, I think, church, an incredibly 
on first blush, an incredibly offensive message to the world around us. What the world often hears us saying in the church as Christians is, we as Christians have figured life out and we will now tell everybody else in the world what they should be doing with their lives and their bodies and their money and their votes. And you're like, who, who made you the emperor? And you're like, Get out of here, man. You're just one of the rest of us in this pluralistic society. That is not what we do. What we do is we put our hands up and say, we were blind. The way you get into our club is by saying, I can't see Jack, right? I, I am totally blind. But I know somebody who can heal. I know somebody who can save. I know somebody who can restore. I can, I can see things and experience things and taste the goodness of God in a way that I never imagined that I could. Do you want in on that? <laughs> Does anybody, anybody need that? Because we've got that, not in us, but in him. And we can bring anybody to him and he will heal literally anybody, right? This is insane. Does anybody want to get in on this? Right, this is what we offer to the world. And let me just say, just a quick note, Easter's coming up in two weeks. I know things are weird. I know uh, people are like, I don't know if I can hang out with you yet. Or I don't know if, you know, it's okay, get over it. And, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. Look around and see if there's anybody you know that needs to see Jesus. Is anybody struggling with hopelessness? Is anyone struggling with crippling anxiety? Is anyone struggling with loss or guilt or burdens? Is there anybody that needs to see Jesus whose marriage is in shambles, whose, whose kids are um, just hurting or burdened? Is there anybody like that that you know, if you do, bring them to Jesus? And it could be a phone call over Easter weekend where you just see how they're doing and share the difference Jesus has made in your life. You could invite somebody to church. You could give somebody a Bible and offer to you know, show them what you're learning. You could say, hey, you give me a book, I'll give you one. Let's, let's, I want to learn more about you, right? Well, however you do it, get, just find people that need Jesus and bring them to Jesus, right? That's how the, clear the passage is. Where else will they see if not in the Word? Where else? Let me close by saying this. Um, back to Bob Dylan. Love this guy. Um, when Bob Dylan took the stage in 1965 with an electric Fender Stratocaster in his hand, most of the people in the crowd did not know something about him. They did not know that he had grown up listening to the electric guitar greats like B.B. King and Chuck Berry. They didn't know that growing up, his favorite radio station was the one he picked up from all the way down in Louisiana that played the blues. They did not know that when he picked up that electric guitar, he was not becoming a different person. He was becoming who he'd always been. They were just able to see it. In a similar way, every week, Jesus is ready to reveal to us who he really is. If only we have eyes to see and ears to hear. May we be so utterly committed to the, to the revelation of God in this book that we never shout down, oh, no, I don't like where Jesus said that in that verse. That's not my Jesus now. We allow Jesus to reveal himself week after week that we may become like him until the day our faith is sight. Amen. Would you stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you.